Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A man cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives him the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, let us begin with a few moments of prayer. Lord, we need your word. It is, a, it is our light and our guide. Help us to understand it. We pray that you would illuminate your word to our hearts. May it have its full and complete work in us that it may cause us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may have life in his name. Amen. We have this transitional phrase at the beginning that uh, after this, Jesus went to this other place. If you remember last week, we were in John chapter 3 as well, and Jesus had interacted with Nicodemus about being born again and God's love for the world, and, and we looked at Numbers 21 as the scene of the Son of Man being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, that all of the new covenant promises are going to be found in Jesus. It's all about looking to Christ. Well, he moves on now to this new scene, and this scene introduces to us many things, one of them being kind of a precursor to the... the uh, the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples. John is baptizing, and he has disciples with him, and Jesus is there with his disciples, and they're baptizing. And so a lot of what we want to talk about today is discipleship. This is an image of what discipleship looks like. We also want to talk about baptism, fulfillment of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. But as I think about discipleship in our culture, I wonder if it might be better for us to think about something like this. Have you ever had a job where you were an intern 
or an apprentice or an assistant in some way. Your whole role there was kind of just to learn how things run, to, to live your days, you know, nine to five, to, to, to get, your, get the hang of the ropes, to see it in real life, to experience it. Uh, that's what we have with this idea of discipleship. I had a friend who wanted to be an electrician, and so he found a master electrician that he could uh, become his apprentice. And so he would go, and of course it's mutually beneficial. This master electrician now had cheaper labor than himself, and they could go do work. And the goal was that he would learn all of the you know, tricks of the trade and, and become one day a master electrician himself. There's this kind of discipleship imagery that we have in our culture. And so the idea of discipleship, we have to ask that question. What is discipleship? It is the process of teaching and maturing. It's that living of a shared life towards a specific goal. It's intentional. It, it's formative. And it's done together. I mentioned the Great Commission here. I'll just read it again so we have the language of it in mind. Beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mount to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' definition of what discipleship looks like is, is going to the nations and baptizing them and teaching them all that he has commanded it's kind of a, an odd pairing. Uh, what is, why is baptism part of this process of being discipled? And it's very prominent in this passage that baptism is happening. And so we want to ask, what is baptism? Baptism plays a lot of different roles throughout Scripture. It has a lot of imagery to it. And sometimes we inherit a, a simplistic understanding of baptism that's very one-noted. And it doesn't grasp the whole concept of what's going on when people are coming out to John to be baptized. Sometimes we like to think of baptism as, you know, representative of Christ's burial and resurrection. There's certainly a, a sense in which that could be part of the imagery, but John has no idea that Jesus is going to die and rise again. And so what is he doing here? What is, what is his baptism all about? The question that's actually happening here, if you look uh, at this discussion that breaks out in verse 25, is John's disciples and this Jewish man have a question about purification. See, John shows up and he is acting like a priest. He's standing out where there's some water and he's telling people they need to be purified. They need to be cleansed. The imagery here of this baptism is one of washing and, and cleansing and needing to be ceremonially clean preparing people to receive the Christ who is coming. That's John's ministry. And they come to him, and they look to what he's doing, and they see Jesus and his disciples over there doing the same thing. And, and the question is, 
who should baptize us, right? Like, which one of these people are purifying correctly? And, and really, you're not even at the temple anymore. What, what's going on out here? You are calling us to be purified, but then Jesus is also over there offering the same... Who is the true purifier? Who is the one that's truly going to cleanse us? That's the question in mind as this Jewish man and John's disciples are trying to figure out what is happening as Jesus and his disciples are taking on more and more of a public role. Should we go to John or should we go to Jesus? The goal of John's ministry and discipleship of the people who followed him really fit in this already-not-yet category that we often talk about. John was, if anything, the first already. He was the one who first came on the scene to announce and prepare the coming of the king, the coming of the promised Christ. His ministry was one of preparation. His discipleship was one of preparing all of the people who would come to him to prepare them for something greater. The remainder of this passage gives us some insights into discipleship from the vantage point of John the Baptist. What was he doing? What does discipleship look like from John? Summarized it in four ways. Discipleship is delegated. Discipleship causes delight. Discipleship causes us to decrease. Discipleship is directed towards Christ. Last week we talked about how we had to understand our place in the story. We talked about how the wrath of God is by default on all of mankind. And that the only way we can escape his wrath and judgment is by looking to the Son of Man who is raised up. We had to understand our starting point is one not of deserving grace, but of deserving judgment, all fallen short of God's standard and glory. But we can look to Christ, understanding he's our hope. But today we want to understand our place in the process of his redemption of the world, our own lives, our children, our community, through the process of discipleship. So first, discipleship is rooted in thankfulness to God's gift. It's delegated John begins his testimony when they ask him, look, aren't you concerned that Jesus is baptizing people over there with his disciples? If we have a poor view of how, this, how we fit into the process, of how we fit into the story, discipleship will necessarily create competition, right? We want to have the most disciples. We want to build our own kingdom. We want our church to be the greatest church. We want to build our own kingdom. John is so quick to say, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Discipleship is a delegated responsibility. It comes from heaven. The work of God is God's work through his appointed means. Even Jesus' words to his disciples at the end of Matthew there in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. The authority is given to Jesus, and Jesus is sending them out 
as delegates of his authority into the world. Discipleship is done for the sake of disciples. When you have the delegated mindset, when you see that you've received something and it's your call and duty to be a disciple maker like John, he is doing it for the preparation of the other person, of those who are coming along. If you think about some of that imagery of the master electrician and his apprentice, there's kind of a divided reason why you would hire an apprentice. It's helpful to you. It's helpful to them. Now, depending on how you view your business and your, your training of these people, it can also lead to competition. You don't want to train this guy too much because he might start his own practice and take over some of your clients and run you out of business. But if instead, this master electrician, this whatever the gift this person has is something that they have received and it's an abundance of the blessing that is it to them that they are giving it out of their abundance to other people so that they too might experience the goodness that they've received. Jesus says, uh, John says, uh, it's not about me, right? He says, I am not the Christ. Remember, you heard me, you bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not worried that Jesus is becoming more important. The second thing that discipleship does is it causes us to delight. It brings joy to our hearts. It's the result of seeing discipleship happen in people's lives. John uses this imagery of a bridegroom and a bride. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John knows his place in the story. He knows that Jesus is the bridegroom and that his goal all along is to send people to him. And he views himself and that, that imagery of, of that wedding as, as the best man standing there and rejoicing, knowing that this bride that's coming is bringing great joy to his friend. It brings him joy to see the bridegroom honored. It brings completion. It brings delight. And, and as we think about discipleship, is that not also the response that ought to happen as we see people coming more and more to the bridegroom? the light begins to turn on in their head. If it's about us, that's a different kind of joy. But how much greater of a joy as we're introducing people to somebody that's so great, and we are just facilitators of that process to see people get it. John knows that it's better for his disciples to go on from him to somebody greater. He knew he knows the true greatness of Christ. Which brings the third point. Discipleship must cause us to decrease. Which is how John ends his response. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And this is really where we see the fruit of people's plans for discipleship. That's how you really understand what your boss was getting at as you were in the training program. Is it making him greater? Is it building his kingdom? Or is he decreasing and pointing out something greater? That's, that's what John's whole ministry is about. He is always, when he interacts, so quick to denounce his own importance and instead to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's his joy to see people leave him and go to Jesus. The more and more that we disciple people, one another, our kids, our friends, our people in our workplaces, everything that we're doing is an example of our, of our discipleship of people around us. It's an unintended, necessary consequence of everything we do. Because it's the life we live as disciples of Christ, whether intentional or unintentional. The things we do are training people what that means. And as we see people coming more and more along in the process, as we are rejoicing in their understanding of, of Christ and who he is and the love that he offers and the forgiveness in his blood, it will either result in us decreasing, falling away, being the friend who's rejoicing alongside of them, or it results in us clustering around ourselves, those who are loyal to us primarily, and only as a consequence to the truths of what we're teaching people. True discipleship must cause us to decrease. It must be, our last point, directed towards Christ, towards something greater than ourselves. We don't believe in the priesthood in the way that people must come to me or you or somebody else in order to get Jesus. There's no magic man who creates a the gap of the distance and covers over it by coming to him. Discipleship is directed towards Christ and it is whole aim is to get people to go to the source themselves. People had to come to John to begin to understand, to be prepared for the Christ that was to come. His work was good. It was calling people to purification. And at every turn of his ministry, he pointed people to the one who they needed to go to themselves. Our discipleship fails if it ends with us. People don't have forgiveness of sins if it goes through us. People don't have assurance of salvation if it goes through us. Perhaps we must be like John the Baptist for a time, preparing people, being the person who's encouraging and alongside. But we must be bringing people to Christ himself so that they go to God's word and they for themselves understand what it says. That their hearts are changed. They aren't living in the shadow of your changed heart. Their faith is made real because they are coming to the source of life itself. It's the goal of discipleship. 
This last section of chapter 3 is the summary statement from the writer of the gospel. And it's this confession that Christ is so much greater than the ministry of somebody like John. That's why we must go to him. He who comes from above, he who comes from heaven, he's above everything. He's above John. He's above the whole sacrificial system of Israel. He's above all things. He who is earthly belongs to the earth. He speaks in an unearthly way, but he who is from heaven is above all. The one who is seated on the throne in that imagery from Revelation chapter 4. He's above even the highest of heavenly hosts. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. And yet no one receives his testimony. But he, whoever receives his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. See, we're told in this next verse that Christ is sent from God and that his words, the very words of Jesus, are the words of God. John's words were great and encouraging and helpful, but they aren't the words of God. The Bible study you go to, if it's not centered on the Bible, it's not the words of God. Our goal should always be to hear and to experience the transforming power of God's word in our lives. And the only way we can find that is not coming to an intermediary, but coming to Christ himself. Why are his words the words of God? Because he has the spirit without measure. Unlike a prophet who has the coming and going of the spirit, or a king who's anointed with the spirit at the time of Israel, Christ has the fullness of the spirit, the anointed one. Everything he says and does is an act of God's words. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He is the one who rules and reigns over everything forever. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The phrase eternal life has been throughout this chapter. The hope of eternal life is only found in him. In believing in him, believing the words of God that only come from the Son. The work of the Spirit only coming through the Son. The love of the Father only coming to us through the Son. That we could have life eternal with Him. This is our goal for discipleship. It's our, our own lives. We're all disciples. Nobody has arrived. Oftentimes we can fall off of our focus and get into these other ways in which we think we can grow. We can go to our Johns in our life. John Calvin cannot give you eternal life. We must go to the Son, to Christ himself. Because whoever does not have the Son does not see life. And as we said last week, the wrath of God remains on him. This is why we do discipleship. This is why we train people. This is why we talk about who Christ is and point them to him. Because without him, there is no life. And it's not that there's just no life. 
There's judgment and wrath. And so as we think about discipleship of ourselves and of those around us and our families and our homes and our workplaces, let us not give them anything else but Christ, the source of God's spirit in the world and his words to us, his people, the words that bring eternal life. Remember John's purpose in writing this gospel to us in chapter 20, verse 31, was that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him we would have life. We aren't going to win people over through persuasive speech or by an argument. People are only won over when they see Christ for who he is, when they are brought to him, and when they believe. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ into the world. As hopeless people under your judgment, we needed help. Help us to point ourselves to your Son for our forgiveness, to be reminded of our only hope in him. And as we bring others along through discipleship, that that would continue to be our aim, not selling people anything else. We can't do this on our own. Give us your spirit. Change our hearts. Give us the joy of seeing those come to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.